for your scriptures. Let's look together at Psalm 126 this morning. You can turn there with me. It's a short psalm, but I assure you, it is very, very deep. We'll just be able to scratch the surface today. Maybe not even that. Let's look at Psalm 126. This is God's word for us. A song of ascents. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. Let's pray together. O Lord in heaven, we do thank you for your word. It is challenging, it is deep, and we know that it's true. We ask, Father, that you would convince us all the more how true it is, how deep it is, how it describes and defines our lives, and even more, that we need it. Lord, we pray that you would indeed abide with us in such a way that we would understand no matter how bad we think we are, we are not beyond the reach of your grace. Abide with us in such a way that no matter how good we think we are, we're still in constant need of your grace. Help us, Lord. Do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. In Jesus' name, amen. As we look at Psalm 126 this morning, this psalm connects with us right from the start. The psalms have a way of pulling us right into their meaning and right into their text and right into the story. This psalm is no different. The psalms, you remember, are very deep. The psalms are not shallow. The psalms are incredibly experiential. Uh, As a matter of fact, when I first came uh, back in February of 2013, you remember that we spent a number of weeks looking through the Psalms. Well, actually, you probably don't remember that, but you might. One of our forefathers has described the Psalms in this way, that the Psalms are an anatomy of all the parts of the soul. They're an anatomy of all the parts of the soul. That means everything that you can experience in life is written in the Psalms. It means that the Psalms are not shallow. It means that they are very, very deep, and they pull all of us in. And this Psalm has a way of doing that right from the beginning. You notice how it says that it's a song of ascents, plural? This is a section in the Psalms from Psalm 120 to Psalm 134. There's a lot of debate about what these psalms are about or uh, what was the particular historical reference of when they were written or why. But to be honest with you, a lot of times academics make things a whole lot more complicated than things really are. Maybe you haven't noticed that, but it's true. 
They can make things very, very complicated. I got a good taste of this in seminary. You know, my job is to make things simple and clear, right? Well, I spent four, four years how to make very simple things very complex. The Psalms pull us right in with this title, A Song of Ascents, because the, the, what's going on here is that this is describing people that are on a journey. That's why it's plural, ascents. It's people are going somewhere, but it's plural. They're going somewhere all the time. You see, it pulls us in because we are on a journey. You're sitting here this morning and you're on a journey. Your life is going somewhere. You are doing certain things this week and have done things last week, and it is for a purpose. You're going somewhere. Your life will end up somewhere. This psalm doesn't just pull us into the text by making us think about the truth that we're all on a journey and that we're going somewhere. This psalm actually deals with emotions. One man described Psalm 126 in this way, that this psalm is an emotional map for one who believes. Now that can mean a lot. Because maybe you're unwilling to think of your life as going on a journey, and your life is building a kingdom, and your life is going somewhere, and your life is about something. Maybe you don't want to think about that. Maybe that's too confusing. So another entry point for this psalm is for all of us to think about our emotions. Maybe some of you sit here this morning and you, or maybe if you ask your best friend, where am I emotionally? What am I really about emotionally? They might say, well, honey, you are all locked up. Your emotions are on lockdown. But you might think to yourself, well, no, it's not really on lockdown. Maybe you actually do have emotions and are able to show them. And maybe in your emotional barometer right now, maybe at your core, there's this outward facade of being kind of happy or joyful. But maybe if you get just below the surface, you realize that you're really hateful. And I mean that in the southern sense, hateful. They're just hateful, you know. Maybe to get below the surface and to think about your emotional life, maybe you're just really, really argumentative. But that's really where your emotions come out. It's just, you just like to argue and be right. Or make other people think that you are. Maybe, maybe down below, your emotions are just all attached to yourself. And you get emotional about everything because the world we would like to think or you might like to think revolves around yourself. Maybe you're just contemplative and just like to ponder and think and never really voice your opinion. Just, just think. Maybe you're just a doer. And you find your emotional strength or energy just in doing. Or maybe it's the fact that deep down you're really, really nervous and emotionally, you are just really anxious and nervous and fearful about everything. Well, this psalm is for us. This psalm is written to unlock our emotions. This psalm is written to help us. This psalm is written to melt our hard hearts. And this psalm is written, it's going to tell us about two things. 
It's going to tell us about joy. It's going to tell us about sorrow. Now remember, we're on a journey. Think about your emotions. Look at the psalm. Verse 3, the last part of verse 3 of this psalm kind of lays it out. Kind of tells us explicitly that there is this undertone, there is this even uh, uh, explosion of joy. The end of verse 3 says this, we are glad. It's the very center of the psalm. We are glad. There is an overtone of joy. Joy is permeating everything. Now there are two things about joy that you need to know. There are two things about joy that a Christian needs to know. There are two things that the non-believer needs to know about Christian joy. The first one is that joy is not bought. Joy is not bought. Christian joy cannot be bought. It's actually a consequence of something. See, we live in this world, we live in this culture. This week, just get ready. You are going to go out into this world and you, we all live in a very, very moody society. We live in a very moody culture. We live in a culture that's really bored. You heard this word? You know this word? Your children ever say this word to you? You ever think this when you're doing your job during the week or when you're at home? We live in a world that is very, very bored because they're struggling to find meaning and purpose. We're going to go out this week and we are going to live lives out in this very moody world where everything is about cutthroat competition and politics. You just can't get away from it, can you? You can't get away from it. Someone is always trying to prove that they're better than you. They're always trying to prove that they're smarter than you. And there are politics everywhere, everywhere. How you treat this person, if you go to this event, if you don't go to this event, if you don't know this person, it's everywhere. There's politics everywhere. And what people do, and what we do, and what we're tempted to do in the midst of this really, really strange world that we live in, is that we try to buy things. We try to buy joy. So we look to entertainment. And we pay for things thinking that we can buy entertainment and that will bring us joy. So we're all into TV and we're into movies and we're into video games because we think if we can do these things and escape from this difficult world that we live in, then I will be joyful. If I can just get away and disconnect, then I will find joy. If I can put my money out and watch the movie that I want to watch, then I will find joy and happiness. I will be a joyful person. But the only thing is, you just got to keep watching more movies, playing more games, watching more TV, right? Now hear me. There's nothing inherently wrong with the TV set. There's nothing inherently wrong with movies. There's nothing inherently wrong with video games. Even though I might not be a huge fan of video games, I do enjoy watching TV. I do enjoy watching movies on occasion. There's nothing inherently wrong with any of it. That's not my point. Don't think that Dave is saying, well, here's what a preacher said today. Stop watching TV. Stop playing video games and stop watching movies and then I'll have joy. That's not my point. 
The point is we live in a world in which we live as if we think I can just buy entertainment and I can buy joy and I'll find it. But we don't. And it's not just that we don't, it's that we can't. You see, joy joy is not bought, it's a consequence. Joy is a consequence of reflecting Joy is a consequence of reflecting and thinking about the big picture, the perspective. Joy is found as a consequence of remembering the big picture. Joy is a consequence of remembering perspective, to see the big picture of what God is doing. All that is to say is that joy can't be bought. Joy is actually based on God. Joy is a consequence of knowing God. Joy is the consequence of knowing that God acts in the world. That God acts in my life. That God is going to act this week. Today. Now. Listen to this psalm. The first verse. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Isn't that incredible to think about? Verse 2, then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. Something has happened that gave birth to this psalm. Something happened in order for people to find joy and happiness. Something happened. God acted. And the consequence of God's action in the world is that people are filled with gladness and joy. And I love the fact that you don't know exactly what happened. We don't know the specific historical event. We don't know the specific context. We don't know the specific restoration. We don't know the specific deliverance. And what that means is this morning, if you realize you're on a journey, and if you realize that it's okay to be joyful, and if you think about joy and realize that you cannot find it by buying it, that joy is only found in recognizing what God has done and who God is, then that means, beloved, that means right now, you can realize that this psalm has multiple fulfillments. It has as many fulfillments as we have life experiences. And that means you can begin to think about your life. And you can begin to think about what God has done and where God has acted and where God has delivered and where God has restored. And you can keep the big picture in focus. You can get perspective and realize that you will find joy as you remember that God is in control. And you might even be able to name some specific things that have happened in your life. And you'll be able to realize, oh yeah, God did that. And you won't be tied into thinking, well, my joy is not just something that I think I can buy, but I can't, I'm learning that. Neither is my joy attached to the circumstances of my life, because those are going to come and go. But it's the truth that God acts. Here are some things perhaps to think about. Think way back. Do you remember your first love? Do you remember God bringing that into your life? Do you remember all the excitement that was going on with that? The joy that came from that? 
When you think back to your first love, you can think back to what God has done. He unlocked things about you. You felt things that you have never felt before. You thought about things in a way you haven't thought about before. And for some of that, for some of us as guys, what that meant is we need to get serious about life. You know, we found a girl and she seemed to like us and well, it's time to shape up and I need to get a job. I really like this girl. She does things to me. She makes me feel and think things. Well, guess what that means? That means i got to grow up. God was acting. God was acting to change and unlock things in your life all because of what he was doing in your life. Don't forget your first love. Don't forget the love that you're with now. God has acted to put you together. And if you're not with anybody right now, just wait. It might happen. And if it doesn't, singleness is just fine. God loves you just the same. Because that being with someone is not going to ultimately fulfill you. It's just not. And you're not going to miss out on any of God's acts because he's going to continue to act and act and act, whether you're single or whether you're married. He's going to continue to act in your life. You're not missing out. It's okay. That may be God's plan for you. And it's wonderful, and it will be beautiful, and you will find joy. Not just thinking about your first love. What if you think about the fact that you have a job? Do you ever remember that the job that you have is because God has acted? He's provided? What about, what about coming to faith? Beloved, don't forget what God has done to bring you to himself. Don't forget that God acted. Don't forget that God has intruded your life with his grace. And he has brought you to his place in which you are willing to admit that you needed him and you recognize that you were broken and fallen and sinful and rebellious and wanted nothing to do with him. And he just changed you. To recognize all that, that was the first step of growth, wasn't it? And that he was enough? Now, the big picture is the God of the universe knows you and loves you and plans on you spending eternity with him. That's the perspective. That trumps a whole lot of circumstances in our lives. That God has acted and that brings us tremendous joy and thanks Even if you look through the scriptures, I can only mention a couple of these, but think back through. Those of you that might read the scriptures and know the Bible a little bit more, think back through the stories of the Bible that you love, that are telling you God's acts, what he has done in history. Do you remember, if you go all the way back to the beginning in the book of Genesis, remember, remember that Adam and Eve turned from God, they sinned against God. And, and, and chapter 3 of Genesis reads at, almost as if God was right there immediately. And he not only told them the consequences for what they had done, but he immediately acts to give them a promise of something he was going to do, that someone was going to come, and that someone, his name is Jesus, and that someone was going to come and he was going to crush the head of the serpent. And, and that's a promise that he begins to fulfill and, and show the the truth of it throughout the rest of history. And not only that, but he pursues Adam and Eve 
and he clothes them with animal skin. Do you remember that in Genesis chapter 3? Adam and Eve sinned against God, and they didn't think to themselves, well, let's see if we can work our way back. They had no idea what to do except hide. Sound familiar? You sin against God and just want to hide? Well, guess what? God's everywhere, and he's coming. And God comes to them, and he sacrifices an animal and clothes them with animal skin. You see, the only way that they could be clothed with animal skin is if an animal was sacrificed. You see, what God was showing them was, look, Adam and Eve, I love you, I've created you, and you've rebelled against me, and there are consequences for that, and they're real. But I want to tell you a promise. I'm going to give you a promise that a seed, a someone is coming, and his name is Jesus, and he's going to change everything. He's going to do what you didn't do. And he is going to defeat sin and death finally, ultimately, forever. And on top of that, I want to show you that this animal has to die in order for you to have clothing. I want to show you that blood has to be shed in order for you to have life with me. And I want you to wear that animal skin so that everywhere you go, you remember, oh yeah, God provided this for me. God made this for me. God was showing me that something had to die in my place so that I can live with him. The last couple of weeks we've looked at the life of David just a little bit. And you remember some of the things going on in David's life. You know that he slept with another man's wife. As king he did that. Yes, he abused his power. Not only that, he was an accessory to murder and so many other things that David did. It's, tr- it's all in the Bible. It's there. But you know what David said at the end of his life? At the end of his life, David started to get some perspective. Do you realize most of us wait far too long to get perspective? We wait till we get older and older and older. And the older we get, sometimes we not only get more cynical, which we have to fight against, but we have to continue to get bigger and bigger perspective. And that perspective has to remain constant in our minds. At the end of David's life, what he said about God is that your gentleness has made me great. Isn't that profound? David would acknowledge before the world, he wrote it down for us to read in several different places in the Old Testament, that God's gentleness had made him great. Now that's perspective. Joy is based on God and what God has done. And this psalm and this joy, the joy of the Christian life, has multiple fulfillments. Don't forget it. Don't forget it. But Christianity, the message of Christianity, doesn't lead us to this que sera, sera. If you want to update that a little bit, hakuna matata kind of mindset. The message of Christianity doesn't lead us to that. It doesn't lead us to this apathetic life. It doesn't make us stoic. It doesn't make us... It doesn't make our joy one of, like, escape. Joy, for the Christian, joy is not ignoring difficult things. Christian joy is not escape. You know how I know that? Because Psalm 126. Listen to this. Look at verse 4. 
Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negeb. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. There's so much joy in this psalm. Remember the center of this psalm, verse 3, we are glad. But there's also sorrow. Verse 5 and 6 tell you that there are tears. Those who sow in tears will reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping will come home with shouts of joy. Yes, you can interpret shall there and just substitute will because that's a little bit more compelling for us here in 2014. I shall go to lunch today. Who's going to say that? I will, right? It's the same word. It means the same thing. He's saying that when our he's saying that these tears will produce something. They will produce something. He's confident. Believer, you can have full confidence that your tears will produce joy. Those of you that don't know the Lord, hear this. The Christian message tells us that tears, the tears that believers shed will produce joy. The tears will work toward our joy. Try to get this in your mind. If joy is not bought, if joy is a consequence, if joy is based on what God has done and who God is, then we will actually be more compassionate. We might even shed more tears. If joy can't be bought, if joy is based on God, then we actually might be more compassionate and might be might shed more tears than those who don't love the Lord Jesus. Because we understand sin's effects in the world. We recognize what sin has done to people and to societies and to the world itself. We understand the way things are supposed to be, and we're learning more and more about what that means. And not only do we see the effects of sin in the world, we don't think of sin as just simply breaking a rule. We actually think of sin as as breaking a heart. We see that sin is something that is done against the heart of God. And that grieves us, do you see? We're more compassionate. We might even shed more tears. Well, how in the world do tears produce joy? How does that happen? I was reading this week, and I've always wondered this. I haven't understood how to answer this question. As I was reading this week, I got a lot of help. And I hope this will make sense to you. And I hope that God will continue to work this into my life however much longer he gives me to live. How do tears produce joy? Here's the connection. Tears equal water. And what happens is as we cry and as we shed tears, the water hits the seeds. It hits the seeds of truth and it hits the seeds of joy. And it causes them to grow and flourish and produce fruit and change and morph and mature. see, we need water to live. It enables things to grow. We can't live without water. We need water. Joy needs water. Our tears fall on the seeds of joy and truth, and it causes things to grow. 
So as we shed tears, you see, it ends up expanding our joy and thanks. That's why the psalmist gives us this amazing analogy in verse 4. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. You see, the Negev was this desert place south of Jerusalem. And on occasion, this desert area was known for having a, 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 a really big storm come across. And through this storm, flood would occur. And the floods would come, and the rain would come, and this desert area would be covered with water. And the water would be so great that plants began to grow, that vegetation began to occur, that there were flowers that would pop up. And you see, this is a picture of our lives. Oftentimes, our lives are like the desert, you know, emotionally and in all kinds of other ways. They're dry. Our lives are cracked. They're just cracks everywhere. There, there's no fruit that's going on. Sometimes we even feel threatened. Deserts will do that. Sometimes we even are a, threatened, a threat to other people. But you see, the grace of God rushes on us like a flood. And it comes into our lives and it nourishes us and it enables us to produce fruit to grow, to change, to live. As I said from the beginning, this psalm is written for all of those who are on a journey. That's all of us. And as we're all on a journey, our journeys have a destination. We might call it home. It's that, it's that place where we go. It's that it's, home is this idea where we think we can find rest, where we think we can perfectly fit, where we hope that we can just be, where we can find our true selves. The problem is, is that we always seem to be journeying and we never seem to be arriving. You know that? A couple of months ago, I took a study leave, and I went back to the western part of the state in the mountains. And it was a time for me to think and pray and write and plan and all that kind of good spiritual stuff. And one evening, I decided I wanted to go back to my house, my old home. And coming here was such a wonderful thing, and it still is, but it was such a blur, you know? I've mentioned some of this to you before. I was really concerned about making sure that Jenny and the kids uh, were, were in the vehicle and loaded up and all everything was packed on the trucks that were coming this way and where they were going to go when they got to Greenville, North Carolina and, and was able to figure that stuff out and, and get Jenny off to South Carolina to see her family and whatever that meant. And then I had to go to the lawyers and sign papers for the sale of my house and just all that stuff that goes into moving. And it was just such a blur because I knew that no matter, no matter how long it took me to get here, leaving on a Thursday morning, I knew that Sunday at roughly 11 o'clock, I had to be here to do certain things. And I wanted to go back to my old home just because I wanted to get some type of, I don't know, maybe closure. And I drove around campus where I used to serve, and I couldn't get out. I couldn't get out of my car. Still can't do it. Just too much there for me. 
But I drove through campus, and if I saw somebody I knew, I just ducked down real quick and kept going. I just want ready. And then I went to my house. It was my house. And I drove up the long driveway, and it's really, really steep. I could tell you all kinds of times I almost went off the cliff and scared Jenny half to death. And I just sat there in my driveway, my old driveway. I never got out of my car. And yes, the people that bought our home came outside, both of them. First it was the husband, then about five minutes later the wife came out. I sat there a long time. And they just came out there and were just staring at me. And I'm just waving. I didn't want to talk to them either. But that was my home. It's where my children learned how to ride a bike. My dog's buried in the backyard. We used to hike up the hill and go find bear tracks and play in the mud. That little tadpole pond to the left of our house is where Owen fell in when the water was freezing. It was my home. But you know what? Not anymore. This is where God has us, and I know it. I didn't go there because I wanted to go back. I might have thought that a little bit. But that's not my home anymore. My home is here. I belong here. This is where God wants me. He doesn't want me to go back to the mountains. He wants me to be here. But you know what? Sometimes I think if I could just go back, everything would be fine. Maybe things would be better. But you know what? It's not. And as wonderful as it is to be here, 30, 40, however however many years the Lord gives me, this isn't ultimately my home either. This isn't ultimately your home either. We are journeying all the time and we never feel like we arrive. And you never will. Believer, you never will. Because the only place that you're ever going to ultimately feel like you fit and the only place where you're ever going to be at rest and the only place where you ever be at home is when Jesus comes back. And it doesn't matter how much you love your house, it's never going to be your home. It's never going to be your final resting place. This psalm has an incredible wingspan. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. That's about heaven. That's when restoration is going to happen. That's when the final, the ultimate restoration is going to happen. And when we get there, it'll be better than our wildest dream. And this, this first verse, we're just going to be able to say it for eternity. God, when you restored everything, it's like we're in a dream. This is better than we could have ever imagined. The wingspan of this psalm is all of our past, and it's all of our future. And this psalm only has ultimate fulfillment in the future. You see, the message of Christianity, the message of the gospel, is not just that Jesus died and rose again so that you can have forgiveness and a standing before God, and that is what you have to receive. It's not just that. 
And for all of us here, we need to receive Christ over and over and over, to put our faith in him over and over and over. But the message of the gospel is that Jesus is changing the world. The message of the gospel is that Jesus has a plan. It's the big picture of where history is going. And when we get there, what we're going to find is that God has removed death and God has removed all sorrows and that what we read in Revelation 21, do you remember from the call to worship? It's going to wipe every tear from your eye. That's what's coming. A couple of weeks ago, we lost one of your pastors. There was a memorial service here a couple of weeks ago, and those of you that knew him far better than I, remember that he loved C.S. Lewis, and he loved the Chronicles of Narnia. And if you were here at the memorial service and were able to gather or, or acquire one of the programs, the, the opening of that program had all of, or three, excuse me, three of some of his favorite quotes. And one of those quotes is taken from The Last Battle. You remember this? Aslan, the king figure, is talking to the other characters in the story, and he's telling them about death and what's beyond. This is some of the quote. It's not all of it. You can read it for yourself. But Aslan says this, But for them, those who had died, it was only the beginning of the real story. Now, at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, and which every chapter is better than the next. Excuse me, in which every chapter is better than the one before. Beloved, that's the message of the gospel for us is that there is joy and there is sorrow and they're related. And we long for the restoration. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word. Psalm 126 is beautiful. And God, I pray that you would take it and use it in our lives. Uh, wherever, Wherever I've misrepresented, Lord, help us to forget that. And help us to cling to what is true. And more importantly, Lord, help us to cling to the Lord Jesus more earnestly from understanding this psalm. May us long for heaven to come. May, us, may we long for the time in which every chapter is better than the one before. We pray this, Jesus, for your glory. And we can't wait to restore all of your glory. And we will be like those who dream. Amen.